Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, Episode 5. Today we're going to be talking about one of our favorite games, Fantasy Flight's Android Netrunner. Here with me today, Orion. Hey there. Unfortunately, everyone else who usually participates in these podcasts does not play Netrunner because they're lame. Yeah, I played with Ben a little bit early on, but I haven't played game against him in well over a year, maybe two at this point. Yeah, at this point, I think we're in too deep, and they got to dive in with us to to keep up. We have perhaps gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Just a bit. And that's funny, because that's a card in Netrunner called the rabbit hole. Ha 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 ha. Puns, yay. Although, I, I, I don't know if I told you this, Orion. Whenever I get video capability for the Thoughtful Gamer, Amber has promised that we can do a learn how to play Netrunner video where I teach her how to play because earlier she promised that she would play Netrunner with me sometime. Someday. Someday will happen. And I have now secured that it's going to happen on video for the entire world to see. Well, what could be better than that? Nothing can be better than that. Anyway, it's Netrunner week here at the Thoughtful Gamer. Woo! We posted, uh, two days ago, we posted some starter deck suggestions for the new Terminal Directive Legacy Campaign expansion, because the starter deck suggestions in the rulebook are horrific, and you should use ours instead. Yeah, they're a bit lacking. I wouldn't call myself the greatest deck builder out there, but I think I can build a deck that at least has a coherent game plan. Yeah, these decks on the back of the rulebook... They didn't even meet, like, basic requirements for a functioning deck, like having enough money to pay for the cards that they have in the deck, or a way to win the game. Yeah, the the win condition was perhaps a bit lacking, so we... We made it better. We improved them. So go ahead, go, go over to the Thoughtful Gamer, check those out if you have Terminal Directive and uh, aren't quite sure what to do, or we're thinking about using the suggested decks, because we tried one game with that, and I think... It was awful. But we'll, we'll go more into that later. First, though, um, I, w- I just want to talk about Netrunner because maybe you're not familiar with it or maybe you kind of know what it is but aren't never thought about getting into it. And despite what we're going to say later about Terminal Directive, Netrunner is an absolutely brilliant game. Netrunner is amazing. I love it. I fell in love with it as soon as I played it and have tried to get everyone else to play it. And I finally succeeded with Mark after about a year. And now he loves it as much as I do. Yeah, it took me a while. The The game has a very bizarre learning curve, I guess, or barrier to entry in that everything has its own unique name that's not found in any other game. So like, you know, in, in most card games, your your deck of cards that are yours is your deck. In Netrunner, if you're one side of the game, the corporation, it's called R&D. And if you're on the other side of the game, it's called the stack. And it's the same for like your hand of cards, your discarded cards. They all have these weird names. Everything, there's this big language barrier to the game that I think keeps uh, a lot of people away from it. But it shouldn't. I'm here to say, even though I rejected it for a year, once I fell in, it's, it's just an amazing game. So... If you want to read a lot of specifics about why I love Netrunner, uh, check out the review I posted yesterday where I gush about it. But in short, it's a an asymmetric two-player card game. So think of a card game like Magic the Gathering, but instead of both sides just trying to drain each other's life points, in Netrunner, one side is the corporation and the other side is called the runner. And they both play very differently. And the coolest thing about Netrunner is that all of the points to win the game are in the corporation's deck. So the corporation is trying, they're called agenda points. The corporation is trying to advance those agendas behind firewalls and in these servers. And the runner is trying to steal them. So everything kind of revolves around the corpse deck and what they're going to do. And the runner is just trying to get in there. Right, and just to back up for one second, it's it's a cyberpunk futuristic setting uh, inspired by Neuromancer, where there's these futuristic uh, corporations, mega corporations that control everything, and then there are these hackers, or runners as they're called, who are trying to break in, and they have their various motives, but those are kind of the, 
the sides drawn up. Yeah, so a lot of the game is played where the the runner is trying to build up a hacking rig, basically. They have hardware, they have their programs, they have various resources they can utilize, but they're trying to basically build up this hacking rig so that they can go in and hack into the corporation's servers. And the servers are represented just by the corporation playing cards face down on the table. Right, the other brilliant part of this game is that until the runner encounters the cards, everything is face down. So the corp has all the hidden information and the runner doesn't know what anything is. They'll know what type of thing. If something's in front of a server, they know it has to be ice, but they don't know which ice or which type of ice or firewall that is. And if something's in a server, it could be an agenda that they need to steal or it could be a trap or it could be something that gives the corp money. It, it's, there's so many possibilities, and it makes the game just brilliant. Yeah, and there are traps. The traps are so fun to play with. There's one of the corporation identities in particular, Jinteki, that has lots of traps, and even though Jinteki trap-based decks have never been super competitive, they're just insanely fun to play. There are four different main corporation uh, IDs. Factions. Factions, yeah. And there are three runner factions, and all of them have their own kind of play style to them. Yeah, they all all have a theme and general motivations, which come out in the game in sort of a color pie, although it's uh, it's not strictly defined. There's things that overlap, and there's things that you'll find in all the different factions. But the HB or Hospiroid faction plays differently than the Jinteki faction, which has more traps and more mind games going on. Whereas the HB is more about efficiency and saving resources. Just to show how rich this world is. So you have Hasbiroid, who in the, in the, in the setting, uh, make these bioroids, uh, robot things. Androids. Androids, basically. And they're all about, again, all about efficiency, all about money. They're a very sleek corporation. And then you have Jinteki, which is a Japanese-based company in the setting that that deals with cloning. And they have clones and they have these psychological games because they're they're tapping into like weird parts of the clones' brains that are able to predict the future and stuff. And these play out in actual what are called Psy games in Netrunner where you have a little clash of wills between the other player. You, when a Psy game is initiated, each side takes two credits, their money in secret and then they reveal simultaneously either zero one or two credits and then different things happen whether or not the credits match or not so it has all this great thematic stuff like that and then you have nbn which is the news corporation it's all about information and tracking the runner and having eyes everywhere and then you have Waylon, which is kind of Oh, Wayland's like just like it, your it's, stereotypical it's Wayland, bad corporation. It's Wayland Consortium, and they are kind of the giant construction conglomerate that built the space elevator known as the Beanstalk in this universe. Oh yeah, that's right. And they're they're mean. Wayland likes to kill runners. As they would say, whenever an explosion were to happen, they would remind you that several Wayland subsidiaries were also damaged during the blast yes yes one of the one of the most iconic cards out of the base set is called scorched earth and it just involves Wayland blowing up this a city block to kill one of the runners and then you on the on the runner side you have just as much interesting mechanism so i i should say that within each of these factions there are multiple ids and they have their own individual different bonuses so think of like if you played hearthstone each of those with the nine different classes have their own bonus in netrunner there's probably by this point what 30 or 40 or more different ids across all the factions there's quite a few yeah and then on the runner side you have the anarchs who are just anarchic and they their their thing is basically they run without care for their own body at all. They'll do things that hurt themselves. Anarchs, anarchs are more about burning down the corp than than the other factions. Then you have criminals, which just like to get money. They just get rich. They like to steal from the corporation. They have a lot of cards that steal money, basically. They have a lot of uh, fancy tricks, too, to bypass uh, things. Yeah, that too. And then shapers, they, they're more diverse because the, the shaper idea is that... You're in it just for the knowledge or just for the experience. So you have 
characters just for the challenge of breaking into the the servers just to see if you could do it yeah so you have people who are just hobbyists you have a professor who's one of the shapers you have a kid who has a pet dinosaur console and so you you can see like there's just so much rich theme in netrunner in just a two-player card game and it not only is in like the art and the flavor text but it comes across in the way the game is played as well the other thing we'll mention is that they do a really good job of not having all the protagonists be white males there are people of all races genders types of family just it's exceptionally diverse very diverse there's not super sexualized characters like you might see in other art. It's all very normal people in this futuristic universe. Yeah, and it's not really... And they deliberately don't make it clear who are the bad guys, but even between the runners and the corpse. Like, if there's any bad corp, like, unequivocally, it's probably Wayland. But then you have, you know, some of the Anarchs are really nasty people. You have one guy who goes around destroying Bioroids with a sledgehammer. You, you know, the criminals are all criminals basically uh so they deliberately don't make it clear that one side is the good guys or one side is the bad guys it's 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 much more nuanced in that way the way they do the world right the general idea of cyberpunk is that there are these evil corporations that control the world and then there's the heroic hacker who's trying to break in and save something or or maybe just get rich but in netrunner it's much more ambiguous who is actually good and bad and it's generally just different parties striving for uh, superiority. Yeah, they're all self-interested just like in, a, in the real world. Right. So on a thematic level, it's fantastic. On a strictly gameplay level, I love how the game plays. Not only just with the, asy- the asymmetry, the deck building's very fun. And the thing that really grabbed me was the economic play because there's a lot more there's a lot more freedom in netrunner than in a game like magic the gathering so in magic one of the famous things about about that is that uh card draw is exceptionally important in magic and resources are exceptionally important so your your mana so a big thing in in magic is that you can get mana flooded where you have too many mana cards or you get mana starved i think it's called where you don't have enough and then uh, just keeping cards in your hand can be very important or drawing enough cards to get your mana out. In Netrunner, they open that entirely up. Instead of, you know, drawing one card, getting to play one mana, and then paying, you know, paying for however much you can play in Netrunner, getting a credit, which is their economy. There's no mana in Netrunner. It's just money. You can use one of your actions. They're called clicks on your turn to get a credit, or you can use one to draw a card. So there's a lot more freedom there and a lot more flexibility in what you do during your turn. And so I find it that it's a lot more interesting kind of the turn-by-turn decision-making rather than just the deck-building decision-making. Because I don't really play Magic, but I have played a lot of Hearthstone, and it has it bypasses the mana problem, but it still has issues with card draw and randomness and i think netrunner mitigates that even more by just allowing you to draw cards if you need to yeah it's a mechanic i find myself wishing for in other games where i'd say man i wish i could click for a card right now and of course that's absurd in whatever game we're playing uh, but it feels so natural in netrunner to be able to spend your actions to get more resources even if it's somewhat inefficient compared to playing cards uh, it's just this fundamental action that makes the whole game engine go forward. Yeah, and a staple of Magic and games that have kind of borrowed from Magic. And I should say that the original Netrunner, back, what, over 10 years ago? they There was a first edition, basically, before Fantasy Flight. Quite, the quite a while ago. I forget how long, but... It might have yeah. been back in the 80s. I don't remember. No, no, it was after Magic. I think it was mid to late 90s was created by Richard Garfield, one of the guys who created Magic. Right. Um, one of his other brilliant ideas. Yeah. And that version never picked, never took off, and then Fantasy Flight, I guess, bought the license and did their own version. No, I think the license or the IP was quite good, and the theme and the gameplay was there, but the implementation and the cards weren't quite done as well as perhaps they could have done, and it never really took off. Yeah, and if you look at some of the art on those cards, it's really bad. <laughs> it's a really ugly looking game. I'm sorry, Richard Garfield, but 
yeah, the art was not good on those. The art on the Fantasy Flight version is excellent, however. Definitely. But anyway, what I was saying is that games that that are kind of in the lineage of Magic have this idea of a, of playing on the curve. And that means that on your second turn, ideally, you play your second mana card, and then you play a card that costs two mana to get a creature, a two-cost creature out on the field. And that means you're playing on the curve, you're keeping up with kind of the tempo of the game. Right, and there's a general power curve as the more expensive things cost more, but they're more powerful. So you want to play the most powerful thing you can for the mana you have and you want to utilize all the mana you have to get the most efficient creature or spell or whatever out to start getting an advantage over your opponent and in netrunner there is no such thing as playing on the curve instead you have kind of two fundamental tempo decisions as the runner it's much more clear-cut you can either do things to give you to give you money and help build your rig to be able to run more efficiently later on or you can do things to actively try to score points now or stop the corporation's plan now. So you're you're constantly weighing those two priorities against each other and trying to figure out what the best plan is. Do you go for the short-term game to try to stop what the corporation is doing or try to steal an agenda early while sacrificing your rig building? Or do you go for building your rig and maybe let the corporation score an agenda early or get a money advantage early? And that's a fascinating decision. And that, that also plays into your deck building. So you can build a deck that is has a primary plan of building up a giant rig. Say you're, uh, this would be most likely a shaper deck where you would have a huge economy engine and a full rig so that you can handle any sort of ice and you just win in the late game because you have this dominating lock on the game and you can get into any server and the corp is just stuck. Yeah, and then on the corpse side, you have the balance of actually trying to get to the point where you can score agendas or playing defensively and putting uh, ice in front of your, your deck and your hand of cards. And that's another really difficult decision that you have to make every game in multiple decisions you have to make every game in every single turn right so you can you can play a rush style where you're playing a minimal amount of ice and just trying to slam at your agendas before the runner can get in or you can be playing more of a glacier it's called where you have lots of ice and lots of money and lots of cards and everything and you're trying to build up to the state where it just is too expensive for the runner to get in and you can safely score at your agendas that way yeah and you very rarely have a turn where you're just playing some rote plan. You're always making decisions, making difficult decisions, second guessing yourself, reevaluating the you know the comparative economic assets each side has, everything like that, and trying to make the most efficient play every single turn. And I think that's, in my experience at least, very unique in these kinds of games. The other thing that I know you mentioned really liking about Netrunner is this risk assessment of how fast do you go, how aggressive do you go, how much do you hold back, when is it time to attack, when is it time to build up, and having to make those decisions, again, as the runner, when you don't know what the corp has installed and what cards they've put down. And as you play more, you might be able to make some guesses, and once they reveal those cards or res them, then obviously you know, but then you have to react to them. And there's so much tension and trying to figure out the right plays. And a lot of times you, you have multiple lines of play where that, where that could all be good depending on what cards the corp is playing and what they're trying to do right now. So maybe the corp is trying to bluff and bait you into running and spending a bunch of money to get into their server. And if you call that bluff, you can gain a ton of tempo by building up your rig for a turn or building up money for a turn and the corp is out that those clicks that they spent on that plan and maybe money as well. Yeah, and in risk assessments a really good way of putting it that there's there's so few decisions that are just correct in Netrunner. It's always trying to balance and figure out what the best move is. There's always more you could think about and more you could evaluate and more mind games you can play with the other person. That um, just makes it great. The very last thing I want to talk about in terms of kind of unique things that Netrunner does that, that other games of this style do not do is this concept of win more cards. 
there's a really fascinating article that I think I reference in my review. Often, I'm, I'm recording this before I post the review, and I, I want to make sure that there's a link in there to this article um, about how in Netrunner you don't really have win more cards. And in a win more card, the idea is that in a game like Magic, they're, they're cards that are often derided because they only benefit you if you're already winning. And in this kind of game, it doesn't matter how dominantly you win. It only matters that you win. So you want to have cards that help you come back and help you maintain tempo, not cards that just make your win more dramatic. In Netrunner, though, whenever you do something positive for in terms of scoring points, it hurts your board position. In, in a game like Magic, it means that your board position is already better than the other side. So you have more or bigger creatures, you're able to attack and damage them. And so once you're doing damage to the other person, you already have the best board position. In Netrunner, because you have to spend money and clicks in order to either steal an agenda or advance and score an agenda, whenever you do something beneficial for yourself, it hurts your board position. And I think that's... It's just beautiful. Like, it's just a beautiful, elegant part of the game. Yeah, there's this opportunity cost to scoring an agenda where you have to spend an entire turn, sometimes part of a second turn, and a bunch of money to be able to score this out. So you're losing not only those, you know, three to five credits, but also whatever you could have done instead while the runner is trying to catch up. So it develops this idea of a scoring window when the corp thinks they're far enough ahead that they can safely spend most of two turns doing nothing but scoring out this agenda and losing money while doing it. But they have to because that's how they win the game. Yeah, yeah. The business model for how this game works is different than your kind of standard collectible card game. It's what Fantasy Flight calls a living card game, which is just a better system. So if you if you're not familiar in in a game like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh, I don't know what other games people are playing that are collectible. Magic's the big one. I don't does anyone play Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon anymore? Oh, well, some people certainly play those, but Magic is by far the biggest CCG. Okay. I wasn't aware. I I remember Yu-Gi-Oh back when I was in high school. That was that was popular then. But anyway, the way those games work, the, you get booster packs basically and they're randomized sets of cards that you'll buy for a few dollars. And they're completely random within a certain card pool. And so to get all the cards in that set, you either have to buy a bunch of booster packs or you have to go to a secondary market where people are, are selling cards. And the best cards often get marked up a lot. So you could pay $20, $30, $50, $100 for like the best magic card in a particular set. And so it becomes very expensive to create good decks. In the living card game model that, that Fantasy Flight is doing, they release packs. They're called data packs in Netrunner, and it's what twenty you, three copies of 20 different cards, and three copies is, is the maximum number you can have in any deck. And they release about one a month, roughly, maybe slightly less than that. Maybe every five weeks or so, but yeah. Yeah, and they're retail for $15, and... When you buy that pack, you get all the cards in that set. There's no randomness involved at all. You know exactly what cards you're you're purchasing. Right. So there'll be, uh, I believe, six data packs in each cycle, which would be the equivalent of a magic set or release. I forget the exact I forget what they call it. Um, and those will come out incrementally every month or so, a new data pack. So you get one of these, a new set, you know, you get almost two sets a year. Or cycles, I should say. Yeah. I mean, there's there's usually some gaps in between them, though. So you may, maybe you get 10 data packs in a year. That's probably more like it. They're, they're a bit inconsistent, but I'd rather it be a bit slower so it's you know you, you have time to learn the new cards and, and test them. Yeah, definitely. But, the, the other difference that I'd like to point out is that Magic releases their new set all at once, and it's a giant. They drop the whole set, and there's a release event, and you start buying booster packs or booster boxes or whatever. With the, the living card game model, you, you come out with a new pack every five weeks or so, as we said, and the six data packs together form a cycle, and they're all in along some theme, some larger theme, but you get little chunks of it at a time. Yeah, which is simultaneously cool and somewhat annoying sometimes because they balance the cards within the entire cycle. 
So I know in the last cycle, not the one we're in right now, but the one previous to this one, there were cards in like the very first pack that had counters in the last pack. And those cards were very dominant for a while until the card that came out that obviously meant to balance it out came out, you know, six months later. Right. And as it happened, Worlds fell about in the middle of that. So it was very dominated by this new strategy that had come out in the beginning of the cycle, which hadn't received its counters yet. Yeah, so it, it's a pretty good system. The lack of randomness and the way they do the re- the way they space out the releases, the price point, I think, is very good. And I think it's it's a very fair system to the players that you know what you're buying. So I think it's a really great system. If you're interested in competitive Netrunner, both Ryan and I are here to say that the community around Netrunner is amazing. Yeah, everyone we've met has been extremely nice and welcoming and great to play against. Yeah, and then the people who do produce Netrunner content all seem to be great people as well. Like the main podcasts, the main YouTube shows, the people who win tournaments, they all seem like really great people and they're enthusiastic about maintaining this kind of positive community we have with Netrunner. So from that aspect, I couldn't ask for a better community surrounding a game. Well, let's move on then to Terminal Directive. Now that we've shared our enthusiasm and excitement about this game of Netrunner, let's talk about Terminal Directive. So we talked a bit about the the way they do the release cycle. In between each of those cycles of six data packs, they have some kind of special release. So for the between the first four of the data packs, they had these deluxe boxes where they gave out, they picked two factions, one on each side, one corp, one runner, and they just gave a bunch of cards for those two specifically. So they're like big boxes. Instead of retailing for $15, they retailed for 30 And then after that, well, the next special release, they gave the World's decks. So they did reprintings of the World's Championship decks. Yeah, I think they did full-size art, alt arts of the World Championship decks. Which are pretty cool. And now they've done Terminal Directive. And I was so excited when this was announced because they announced that they're going to have a legacy campaign style game with Netrunner. And it was designed to be kind of the next step after you get the, the main game, the core set. So for people who bought the core set and want a bit more Netrunner, this was supposed to be, okay, this is the thing we buy next to spice it up a bit. Right. And that's been one of the complaints with Netrunner is that at this point we're, what, seven cycles deep or so? I think we're in the seventh cycle. Uh, plus four deluxe boxes. So there's a lot of cards to buy if you want to buy a complete set. And depending on how many different decks you want to play, that I mean th- that can become expensive. And you can argue back and forth, well, oh, a magic deck is really expensive too. And that's beside the point. But buying all in on Netrunner can be expensive. And people were complaining that there was this barrier to entry for new players where the, the cost of buying in kept going up and it was becoming harder to get into the game. So this was intended to be a clear next step of here's the next thing you buy to spice things up, get some more cards, get some more exposure to the factions and see what they might do, and and provide this legacy campaign that uh, to give you some story and some more flavor and uh, make it make it fun. Yeah, and so for those who aren't familiar with what a legacy game is, it was created by Rob Davio back when he worked at Hasbro, I believe, when he made Risk Legacy, which was a variation on the classic game Risk. And the idea of a legacy game is that you make permanent changes to the game as you progress through a sort of campaign. So in Risk Legacy, I I haven't played it, but I know you get new cards and new abilities I think you put stickers on the board after things happen. Um, We've played Pandemic Legacy, which was his follow-up. Which was amazing. It was excellent. Which which is so good. And it's the same kind of thing. You get new information, rules to the game change. You're putting stickers on the board that affect how those areas of the board interact from from now on. They're boxes with new components. I won't spoil anything because if you haven't played it, you should. But that's the idea of a legacy game. It's a, it's a campaign game with permanence. And it's a really exciting part of board gaming right now. There haven't been that many legacy games, but it's kind of becoming, a I can't say a fad because 
they're insanely difficult to design. So there haven't been very many of them, but it's a very hot topic in board games right now. And there are a couple more coming out this year. So when I heard that Netrunner was doing a legacy game, I was super excited because, you know, with this, this world they've created and the different identities and the different characters in there, they could, they could do so much with a campaign style game with Netrunner. And now that we've played through one and a half games of Terminal Camp- Direct campaigns, campaigns, yeah, campaigns, we, we completed one, my copy of it, and now we're in the middle of completing Orion's copy of it from the other side. Underwhelming, I think, is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, disappointing. Disappointing, yeah. Without spoiling anything, you get, other than like the, the tournament legal cards, you get a deck of cards that ha- that provides story and provide decisions for you to make as you progress. And new abilities that unlock throughout the campaign. Things that unlock. You get a little deck of stickers that will sticker things. The story is so weak. (laughs) Without going into details, it's just like, don't go in expecting much out of this story. I I barely remember anything from it, and we were just playing it, you know, an hour ago. Yeah, it was very underwhelming. I didn't feel like the theme came across in the games that you played and the cards or abilities they added seemed somewhat arbitrary and they didn't really tie in well to supposedly this this the background story and i I don't know yeah and part of the thing in legacy games is that you're supposed to make tough decisions and when you have to like destroy something or do something permanent it's supposed to be difficult and nothing in this felt difficult no it seemed like there was a clear choice almost every time yeah. yeah, and I guess that's all I have to say generally. Like, I think we'll talk about this later, but I think there's some great cards in here and some really interesting cards. And maybe this is the pack you want to get after the core set, but don't get it for the legacy part. The The story, the campaign, it's fine to go through, but it absolutely does not even come close to matching the level of excellence that we should expect now from Netrunner. Because every other part of the game is so great. And this seems so... It seemed amateur. I will say I still enjoyed it because I love Netrunner. And I love this game and playing it and building a deck. And then you get to experience some things as you go through the campaign. But for me, the theme really didn't tie in or hit home at all. And it was just background noise that I read and immediately forgot because no one was really memorable but i will say the 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 most fun thing about it is that it it recommends that you don't play with the full the full card set even if you do own it right just play with one core set and then the cards from terminal directive but in building and playing with those kind of stripped down basic decks without the cards that i'm used to relying on that was actually really fun. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed deck building for this because, as we mentioned, we played one game with their recommended decks and decided we could do better. And then I went back and I started looking at, well, here's all the cards in the core set and terminal directive, and there's not that many choices to make. So trying to f- put together a comprehensive deck that had a cohesive game plan and hit the basic boxes for uh, for a deck was sometimes difficult, and it was fun to build a deck with these what would be now under the curve cards and some sometimes outdated or whatever but i i it was that was a lot of fun yeah Yeah, the games themselves were were really fun so that's what i have to say generally i guess now we can move into spoiler territory so if you do not want to be spoiled about terminal directive turn you know mute the podcast now i'll put in the description when this part ends so you can skip ahead to it so, warning it once more, we are entering spoiler territory. Spoilers ahead. <laughs> All right, that should be enough time. Okay, Ryan, I, I, I want to preface this <laughs> again by saying I don't, I don't mean to be mean, but the legacy part was so bad. It was so bad, and I don't want to, I don't want to come across as just being some grumpy old person or something, but I have to criticize it on many levels. Yeah. No, what do you remember about the story of this game? I remember the setting is this rogue bioroid who supposedly kills someone, which is supposed to be impossible, like Asimov's Third Laws. And then you kind of wander around and talk to some people, and then nothing happens at the end. Yeah. There's a there's a rogue bioroid. It murdered someone. They caught it on camera. 
and then a bunch of stuff happens that I don't remember. There's then it's like there oh there's more killers happens. and there's some sinister shadowy group who's supposedly controlled and planned the whole thing, but then just nothing happens. And at the end, you either like shoot everyone or put it in your lab to study or something. Yeah, it's it's awful. And not only is like the whole structure of the campaign so weak, the writing wasn't very good. And this is something I was surprised by because in every data pack for Netrunner, they have these little fold-out sheets that have like a short story or some kind of lore building, theme building snippet on them. Those are great. Those are excellent. I haven't read any of the Netrunner books, but I've heard they're pretty good. Anyway, like I expected the writing to be pretty good and it didn't seem very good at all. There were a couple of cards where I thought, oh, that was clever. Set number nine in the runner side was pretty funny. Um, and I enjoyed it. That's the set that they give you when you lose a bunch of games. So, like you need help. <laughs> it's like open set number nine if you lose four games. and then But the runner side version of that was pretty good. But most of it, it was just kind of ham-fisted, like the kind of writing you would expect to see in a poorly rated TV serial like detective serial, you know. The other um, the other thing that I have to criticize is that for one the box is about what 15 times larger than it needs to be or something. More I mean, I think that's an understatement. Like we're we're used to like anyone in the board game community who has purchased a Fantasy Flight game is used to the Fantasy Flight Canyon. We love Fantasy Flight games and they make a lot of really good ones, but we like to mock them for their ridiculous boards or the ridiculous boxes that they put these games in because they use a box that's way bigger than they need to and put this canyon in that uses, you know, a third of the box to actually store two decks of cards and a bag of minis or something. Yeah, and we're used to that. And it's like, okay, now it's it's just something we're used to. You open a box, you get the canyon. Sometimes the canyon, there's there's more space, they need more, and you're like, oh, good for them. This box, in, in terms of size, is a bit smaller than like a standard Ticket to Ride box. Like, It's a bit taller and a bit uh, narrower. In dimensions, but it's like twice as tall as a Ticket to Ride box, but a bit more narrow. So maybe slightly larger in volume. It's than probably that kind of standard board game box. It's probably two thirds of their Rebellion or Imperial Assault or Armada boxes, which are all the extra tall and square boxes. Yeah, it's probably about that tall, but a bit narrower. And it has about four decks of cards. Yeah, four decks it. of cards in it, like standard playing cards. It's just insane. I have no idea how this is a good business move for them. Like. I know they have smaller boxes. The old deluxe sets were in smaller boxes, and those could have fit Terminal Directive with plenty of room to spare. Yeah. Like, how is it a good business decision to use this much cardboard to ship a couple decks of cards? If you want this to be something that people buy and then keep and perhaps expand their collection, it's this ridiculous-sized box to store some cards in that you're going to throw away half of anyways because it's a legacy game. Yeah, Like, I could see maybe it'd be really cool if they did something where they gave you a big box, but you could, like, flip the insert upside down and then store cards in it. That would be cool. Something like a Dominion insert. But this box is, yeah, yeah, like a a Dominion insert or something. This box is taller than a vertical playing card, even in a sleeve. Like, it's significantly taller. It makes no sense. I don't get it. Right. So, anyway, that, that aside... The other thing I have to criticize is that the Terminal Directive comes with these great identities, two corps and two runners, but the first thing you do when you open the box is you build a deck for one of them and you set the other side and you never use it again for the rest of the game. And you might import a few cards from the other faction, but you're just it's like you're playing with only half of half of what they gave you. And the story is completely neutral. There's no specific flavor to one or the other. You don't see the other characters showing up. You're just this nameless, ambiguous, either corporation CEO or vice president or something, or the the runner, and you go through the story, which we've already said is kind of pretty mediocre. And it just it doesn't tie in, and you don't even get to use all the cards in the box. So that, I don't know. That wasn't that wasn't great. Yeah, so to, to really utilize it, you need to be in a situation like with us where we each knew we were going to buy uh, this box just for the cards, 
And that way we can play through it twice and both, you know, get all the identities out. But if it's just, you know, if you're just buying it for like you and your spouse or just to play casually with your friends, you're not going to want to buy two boxes just to be able to experience the legacy thing through all the identities. It doesn't make any sense. But it, the legacy part doesn't change. You just don't get to use all the cards. Yeah, it's it, it's not a very good system. The other thing that really disappointed me was that, you know, the entire point of a legacy campaign is you're supposed to have these very difficult choices. And we already talked about Pandemic Legacy, where you would make these very difficult choices and it would shape the course of the game. It would shape how the game is played. It would change the map. And there were significant consequences for those in terms of what the game threw at you and what you could do to fight back. And in this, not only is it kind of short, like you're going to get through the whole campaign in what, seven to ten round games of Netrunner? Probably. Uh, yeah, probably. Around there. Some of the choices were literally non-choices. Either one of the options gave you a, just a clearly better ability. Or, in a couple of cases even, the, there wasn't a real choice at all. You could go one of two directions, but it just rerouted you back to the same cards or the same abilities, which was incredibly disappointing. Yeah, I noticed on a couple of them it seemed that one choice was better for one of the factions and the other a bit better for the other faction, but n- only for a couple was that true, and even then it wasn't that great. Yeah, the choices were just so obvious, or they didn't matter at all, for almost all the choices. I'd say all but maybe one or two of the decisions you're going to make on either side were kind of interesting. Yeah, I think the only time I struggled was when it was a choice between two mediocre things that my deck didn't really fit into, and I just had to choose the thing that fit a little bit more that I thought I would eventually hit, but it wasn't that compelling. Yeah. Yeah, and even when you did have a real choice, they weren't very interesting choices. Like, and, and I think that was the one where either choice eventually gave me the same reward. Yeah, it, it was, again, using the word disappointing. It was very disappointing. So I think that's all. Did you have any other criticisms in spoiler land before we exit? <laughs> I, I think we've uh, torn it enough. Well, we can move on. All right, so we're we're exiting the train out of Spoilerville. And let's go back to something a bit more positive. So as I as I spoke so, of before... Welcome back to anyone who skipped the spoilers part. We're going to go on to some recommendations for what to buy after the core set and go over the other uh, deluxe big boxes now. Yes, welcome back. We're glad to have you. So, I, you know, as I said before, Fantasy Flight intended Terminal Director to be the next Netrunner thing you purchase after your, you know kind of sick of the core set or you want a little bit more you know a few more cards or some more interesting things in netrunner so is it worth it and that's what i looked at i went through all of the different deluxe packs before i go into that though i want to say that if you're looking for kind of a next step for what to get after the core set the world championship decks are actually pretty good yeah they'd give you a fairly competitive deck that you could play and a bunch of the top cards that you'd want in any deck I'd say particularly the Corp deck, the HB Food Coats deck. Yeah, that has a lot of solid cards. That has so many cards that you would need for HB Glacier style specifically that you would need to get over a number of different data packs. So if you'd like HB out of the core set, that's the way to go. It, it has basically everything you need. It has Jackson Howard also, which is the most important Corp card generally. Mm-hmm. Um, it has Global Food Initiative, the best 5-3 agenda. It has really good HP staples like Eli, which is just a fantastic barrier piece of ice. Um, so if you like HP, I think that's the way to go. Mostly because the very first deluxe expansion called Creation and Control focused on HB and Shaper on the runner side. And I went through the list of HB cards and I didn't see a single... Haas Byroid card in that deluxe pack that is actually used competitively. Like, they, they just weren't good. But on the other side, for the shapers, the shaper cards, it defines shaper. Like, it's, it's foundational cards for shaper. You almost can't play the faction without it. I can't imagine playing a shaper deck without 
having the cards in this pack. Yeah, your life will be different after you play Shaper with Creation and Control. Yeah. Also on the runner side, it has a lot. Uh, Creation and Control has a lot of the best neutral economy cards that you'll put in a lot of decks. Yeah. So if you want to boost your runner side, and it, particularly if you like Shaper, if you like playing with Kate, as I do, Kate is my favorite uh, runner identity. You need to get Creation and Control. That's probably should be your next step. But it doesn't really do anything for HB. Or Corps in general. Or Corporations in general. Then we move on to the second deluxe pack called Honor and Profit. This one focuses on Jinteki and Criminal. And for both sides, it gives some pretty good cards. I think particularly for Jinteki, it gives some really fun cards. Uh, Psychic Field, one of the best trap cards, which is what Jinteki is all about. It gives... Uh, then the Future Perfect, which is key to any Jinteki deck that's trying to score, or actually pretty much any Jinteki deck. Any Glacier-style Jinteki deck, you can build kind of a, a trappy mind game deck with a lot of small agendas, especially out of Personal Evolution, the core set identity. But for most other Jinteki decks, you're going to at least want to look at Future Perfect. And then it gives to me what is the most fun Jinteki card of all, Mushin Notion. Ah, Mushin. Which isn't a trap, but it baits traps really well. It's yep. an operation that lets you play three advancement counters on a card in a new server face down, but you can't score it if it's an agenda that turn. So you could put it out on an agenda that you can then just score next turn, or on something really scary like a Project Junebug uh, from the core set, which, if the runner runs it, will probably kill them. Right. So, if you like Jinteki, you like mind games, you need to get Honor and Profit just for Mushin. It's, it's such a fun card. On the criminal side, it gives some really good kind of standard criminal card security testing, legwork, which helps you get multi-access into HQ. And then it gives a set of icebreakers that only work in central servers, but they're very efficient. The Codegate Breaker called Passport is the best of these and it's pretty much in every single criminal deck you'll see out there it's it's used commonly alongside another piece so a lot of criminal decks might run a passport and a gordian blade or something like that so this is actually probably overall the most well-rounded of the of the deluxe packs for the kind of the quality of the cards you're getting because you get good stuff on both Jinteki and criminal and those are both quite fun factions to play given the cards uh in the core set and uh, that expansion and a lot of fun to play against each other too because Jinteki is all about mind games and criminals are all about being very aggressive with running right so, and bypassing those mind games <laughs> yeah yeah so that's a really good one uh, the third one's called order and chaos it's for wayland and anarch overall this is probably the weakest one for me it has a couple good cards but nothing too groundbreaking it has a couple of good Wayland identities, but other than that, it doesn't really have anything good on Wayland. On Anarch, it has a, a really important card for competitive Anarch called I've Had Worse, which is damage protection for them. And then it has the cutlery cards, which have been used recently you know, very well in competitive. But for casual play, not a really a lot there. It's not worth it to get I've Had Worse. Not a top priority, we'd say. Yeah. For the astute among you, you may have noticed that there are only three runners and four corporations. So what will the fourth big box do now that they've run out of runners? What indeed. The fourth one's called Data and Destiny. It covers the final corporation, uh, NBN. And then, because as Orion pointed out, they, we've run out of runner identities, they introduce mini factions, which are loads of fun. They're not particularly competitive. But for the casual player, I think lots of fun with these mini factions. Essentially, they give you three of them. They give you Adam, Apex, and Sunny. They all have very strong kind of strategic thrusts that you have to go for. And then they give you lots of influence points because you have to import lots of cards from the other main factions. Right. You get about 10 cards for each of them, and then you have to import uh, many cards to fill out the rest of your decks. So you have... I think 25 influence instead yeah. of the more standard 15. Yeah, so in some ways a lot more customization there. But before we talk about those, on the NBN side, it gives you a couple cool cards. It gives you a good identity and sync. It gives you probably the best or one of the two best NBN code gates in Archangel, mm -hmm. which is 
in pretty much every NBN deck out there right now. And it gives you a really fun card in 24-7 News Cycle, which is a combo card, but I will not spoil what it's comboed for. If you're playing casually, try to figure it out. And I think most significantly on the on the corporation side, it gives you Global Food Initiative, which I already talked about, is the single, probably the best agenda in the game. It's probably the most, it's certainly the most widely used. Certainly the best neutral agenda and the best 5-3 I would argue that AstroScript is better, but you can only use one of those in competitive. So GFI is, yeah. on the whole, probably the most powerful agenda. Yeah, and then you get these mini factions. So they're super fun. My favorite is Sunny. Sunny is just a hardworking mother trying to earn a living for her children. Who works in the security industry. She works in security and has access to like the highest end tools. So she has some really good breakers. She has the single best console in the game. She has lots of link, which is kind of cool because it's up against NBN in this in this uh, pack. And NBN is, has a lot of things doing with tagging and link and traces. Yep. And everything she has is super expensive. <laughs> yeah, her decks tend to be really slow, but they, they can be a lot of fun. They can be a lot of fun. You then have Adam, who is a rogue biroid whose cool thing is that he starts off with these three directives that you you play face up on the table before the round even begins and they each of them has kind of a plus side and a downside so like one of them I can't remember exactly one of them yeah. like cuts your hand size down to 3 but it lets you do something else yeah the the most fun is probably always be running that one forces you to run or use a run event on your first click but you can spend two clicks to bypass any subroutine. Yeah, so like a Bioroid that has directives, Adam has these kind of rogue Bioroid object uh, uh, directives, and they actually direct you to do things. Like you have to do certain things. Yeah, uh, they they put restriction they put restrictions on how you play, but they also give you some benefit. So if you like aggressive runners, Adam is definitely an aggressive one because you have to run as your first click every single turn. Yep. There was a fourth directive for him released recently in, I think, the previous cycle. Yeah. So if you're interested in Adam, you can look that up. So there there are options to swap out one of those directives as you expand your collection. Yeah, and it actually made Adam quite a bit better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, we get everyone's favorite, except for me. I, I like Sunny the best. But the most weird runner ever released. Apex. Apex some kind of sentient digital organism i think i think he's like a sentient ai that is trying to devour everything he comes in contact with yes he just tries to destroy and devour which gives you one of the problem well i can't think of a more fun card in netrunner than apocalypse oh i love apocalypse i try to build more i should try to build more decks with it i can never get it to work but it's so fun if you it's it's a card that says if you run all the central servers in a single turn, then you can play Apocalypse and every corp card that's installed is trashed. And, and every runner card. And every runner card that's installed is turned face down and rendered unusable, except for Apex has a couple things that can interact with those sorts of things. Those yeah, sorts so of cards. Apo- Apex has lots of or has a few cards that will flip cards upside down or use cards that are upside down on the runner side. So a lot of interesting interactions there. So if you want to really spice up your post core set experience, this one might be the one to go for because you get a lot of very strange tools here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's sure. a lot of fun. And then finally we get to terminal directive. We talked a lot about the legacy part in terms of the actual cards. Just looking at it as, as another deluxe expansion, there's actually quite a few good cards. And since it covers four factions instead of only two, it's a, a broader broader applicability and you'll hit more more factions. And, you know, if you like Wayland or HB and Shaper or Criminal, you get some cards for any of those. Yeah, I went, when I was looking down the list, I won't go over a lot of details, but I'd say three of the four IDs that they give you are really cool. The HB one doesn't seem particularly powerful to me, but each of the four factions gets at least two or three really good cards. And when when I say really good, I'm speaking of competitive play, because that's always the frame of reference that I'm dealing with. But even for the casual player, you want to build the best deck with the card set you have. 
when you're evaluating car- a card of whether or not it's good, you tend to think in the competitive sense, is this good at winning games in a competitive setting? And I think there are a couple of those for each faction, which is great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's certainly others that have some really fun thematic elements, especially the some of the Wayland cards, I think, fit mm-hmm. that. Um, and some of the shaper cards as well, I would say. Yeah, the there's, shaper uh, cards some, are very interesting. There's a, They're exploring some new design space on some of the shaper cards that they've touched on, but they're fleshing that out. and So those are interesting. I don't think they're quite up to snuff on the power curve for competitive, but they're definitely interesting and could be fun to build a deck around. Yeah, so that's kind of the deluxe expansion so far. So to give just a rundown of my recommendations, if you love shaper... You have to get Creation and Control. If you love HB, get the 2015 World Championship Corp deck. Otherwise, I think the strongest is either Honor and Profit or Terminal Directive. At least for just overall getting a bunch of good cards that are going to be in decks that you're building to try to win games. If you just have a core set and one more, I'd get one of those too. Unless you want to go nuts, in which case get the mini factions and Data and Destiny. I'd stay away from Order and Chaos. I think that's by far the weakest of of the packs. Yep. So those are our recommendations. Is there anything else you wanted to comment about with Terminal Directive? Uh, Not specific to that, no. I just uh, plug our strategy article that'll be coming out uh, Thursday of this week. Yeah, and that strategy article will cover uh, some basic deck building techniques, and then we'll talk about kind of our thought processes and different aspects of the game and how we think the game flows. So I think you'll get a lot of good information out of that strategy article, particularly if you're someone who just say has a core set or is not, not super competitive because honestly, Orion and I aren't that good at Netrunner, but we're super enthusiastic. So we want to help people. Who... Right. We, we've got in the last year, we've gone from playing at the kitchen table to playing in local tournaments and then have had marginal success there and have enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, so we're not pros, but we're very enthusiastic. I think we have a pretty good grasp of those kind of solid foundational aspects that, at least for me personally, were the things that brought me into the game and actually got me to like this game. You know, ideas like scoring windows or thinking about, you know, net economic advantage. Those kind of interesting strategic concepts is what really got me enthusiastic about this game. We'll be talking about that. Right, and on the deck building side, things like having a plan to actually win the game and balancing out your economy versus your ice suite and concepts like that. Yeah, and that may seem like really obvious stuff, but I'm—I don't know if you remember, Ryan, when I was first, when I first plunged head first into this game and I was trying to build my own decks, I'd send them over to you, be like, "Whoa, what do you think about this one?" And you're like, "How do you plan to win with this deck?" I'm like, "Oh, I didn't think about that. I just thought there were a bunch of good cards." But I didn't actually have a plan to access cards on, you know, to, to steal cards or, or get into servers very well or anything like that. So right. some of those basic foundational things are, are very important. And if you haven't seen before, that's going to run on Thursday. Yesterday, I put up my Netrunner review. So if you haven't played Netrunner at all, please read that. And I'll talk more about the specifics of the game and, and the language and why I love it so much. And then we posted on Sunday our our recommended Terminal Directive starter decks, which I think uh, if you have Terminal Directive, you'll find very useful because please, for the love of all that is good, don't use the ones that Fantasy Flight recommends in the rulebook. They're so bad. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that wraps up our thoughts on Netrunner. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, so if you enjoyed the if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review on iTunes. Apparently on iTunes you need a certain number of ratings total before they'll actually post your aggregate, and we haven't hit that yet, and I'm super nervous about what our aggregate's going to be when it actually posts. So please rate and review if you like the podcast. If you didn't, just go away. <laughs> hey now, Mark. We Sorry. want the truth. And uh, check us out at thethoughtfulgamer.com. Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter or email. I love hearing from people and hearing uh, feedback and suggestions. The people who who uh, have sent me information, I got a few emails, have been super nice and gave me some great suggestions about how to improve the site, how to improve the podcast. I'm still fairly new at this, so I love hearing from people who are enjoying the content. 
And to finish off, to quote one of our favorite characters in the Netrunner universe, Gabriel Santiago, consummate professional. Of course I steal from the rich. They're the ones with all the money. Talk to you next time. Jacking out.